afternoon and welcome to the 209th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today is a COVID calls historians roundtable with Sandra Eder, Cindy Ermas, and Tiago Sariva. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls Live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 26th, 2021, there are 2,151,248 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 25,386,596 cases of COVID-19 in the United States there are 423,653 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. That's up from 420,267 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. This is an obituary of the historian John M. Murren this was written by Denise Valenti in the Office of Communications, Princeton University, May 11th, 2020. John M. Murren, Princeton Professor of History Emeritus, a scholar of American colonial and revolutionary history in the early Republic, died May 2nd at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in Hamilton, New Jersey, of complications from COVID-19. He was 84. Over his career, Murren published more than 50 essays that ranged widely across the Atlantic and Anglophone early modern world from the 17th through the 19th centuries, examining social, religious, political, and legal history. John Murren was the most ingenious early American historian of his time or any other time, said Sean Wilentz, the George Henry Davis 1886 professor of American history and professor of history. His preferred form was the essay, pieces which he rendered as intellectual inventions, taking big conventional ideas about colonial society before the revolution, say, or about the framing of the constitution and forcing you to think about them as you never had before. Byrne is co-author of the textbook, Liberty, Equality, and Power, A History of the American People, and also the author of an essay collection, Rethinking America from Empire to Republic, which appeared in 2018. He edited and co-edited several books, including Colonial America Essays in Politics and Social Development and Saints and Revolutionaries. Among his many fine qualities, John was known for his wide-ranging knowledge about a great many fields of history well beyond his expertise in early North American colonial history in the early national period, said Keith Waylu, the Henry Putnam University Professor of History and Public Affairs and the Chair of the History Department at Princeton. He was also renowned for producing a remarkable group of PhD students in the field for his enthusiastic support of the history softball team and for just being a wonderful person. Murren joined Princeton in 1973, transferred to America's status in 2003. He was born August 20th, 1935 in Minneapolis. Murren, or Murren earned a bachelor's degree from the College of St. Thomas 
master's from the University of Notre Dame and his PhD from Yale. He taught at Washington University in St. Louis before coming to Princeton, where he remained until his retirement. Andrew Shankman, a professor of history at Rutgers University Camden, who also studied with Murren and wrote the introduction to Rethinking America, said Murren was an extraordinary scholar, teacher, mentor, and advisor whose enduring significance and impact is clearest in his over 50 published essays, a form that he mastered and to which he was devoted. He's remembered for his wit, humor, generosity, kindness, and particularly for his wide-ranging enthusiasm and excitement about the truly diverse scholarship of the early Americas, Shankman added. Among his colleagues and mentees, Murren is remembered fondly for his love of baseball, his perfect recall of decades-old stats, and for founding the departmental softball team with William Jordan, the Dayton-Stockton history professor. Murren served as chair of the coordinating committee and as a member of the editorial committee and the advisory committee for the papers of Thomas Jefferson, a project preparing the authoritative and comprehensive edition of the correspondence and papers of the third president of the United States. And he was also an expert in Princeton University history, editing the final two volumes of Princetonians, a biographical dictionary, which documents the lives of over a thousand students known to have attended the College of New Jersey in the classes of 1748 through 1794. Murren was a member of the editorial boards of the Journal of American History, Explorations in Early American Culture, and the Princeton University Library Chronicle. He was chair of the Advisory Council and Executive Council of the McNeil Center for Early American Studies, program director and chair of the Columbia University Seminar in Early American History, and a member of the Advisory Council at the Alejandro Institute. Murren is survived by his wife, Mary, brothers David and Michael brothers-in-law, John Roach, William Roach, and G.T. Buckman, and a sister-in-law, Jeanette Roach. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. I have three brilliant historians to talk to today, and I'd like to introduce them to you. Let me start with Sandra Eder who is an assistant professor in the history department at the University of California, Berkeley, where she teaches United States gender history and the history of medicine. Her research focuses on gender, sexuality, and race in medicine and science, clinical practices and patient records, and the science of happiness. She has a book forthcoming on the emergence of the sex-gender binary in mid-20th century American medicine, and she's the co-editor with Elena Konis and Amy Medeiros of Pink and Blue, Gender, Culture, and the health of children, which deploys gender, often in concert with class and race, as the central critical lens for understanding the function of pediatrics as a cultural and social project in modern US history. This will appear with Rutgers University Press in just a couple of months. Cindy Irmas is assistant professor of history at the University of Texas at San Antonio. She teaches courses on the history of disease and disaster early modern Europe and the age of revolutions. She's published on catastrophe and crisis management in 18th century Europe and the Atlantic. And she's the editor of a volume titled Environmental Disaster in the Gulf South, Two Centuries of Catastrophe, Risk and Resilience, which appeared with LSU Press in 2018, and which is a great book. Her current book project is a transnational study of the plague of Provence in 1720. One of the last outbreaks of plague in Western Europe. She's also the co-founder, executive editor, and contributor for the digital academic publication, Age of Revolutions, which you can check out on Twitter at, at Age of Revs. The third guest is Tiago Sariva. He's associate professor of history at Drexel University. He's also co-editor 
with Amy Slayton of the journal History and Technology, and he's the author of Fascist Pigs, Techno-Scientific Organisms and the History of Fascism, which appeared in 2016. He's been a research fellow at the Institute of Social Science at the University of Lisbon, as well as visiting professor at UCLA and at Berkeley. He's currently studying the significance of cloning California and oranges for the history of racial capitalism in the United States, South Africa, Algeria, Palestine, and Brazil. And he's completing a book titled Moving Crops and the Scales of History, a collective manuscript with multiple co-authors. Sandra, Cindy, and Tiago, thanks so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to be back. I'd like to start the way I usually do, which is to find out where you're calling from and how the pandemic is looking there. Sandra, can I start with you, please? Yeah, I'm calling from Northern California, from Berkeley, and we are currently in our third wave. Uh, actually, today, Governor Newsom declared the end of the shelter in place. Uh, I think momentarily a decision that's more mainly based on more based on political and economic uh, circumstances at the moment, rather than because the case, I mean, the, the higher cases than we, than we had uh, any, at any stage before. So it's an ongoing uh, crisis, third wave, and we've been in a way sheltering in place uh, since uh, March. So that's the situation here now in California. It's, uh, yeah, I think I don't really know what to say. Oftentimes I speak to guests who are from other parts of the United States, maybe more in the South or in the Midwest. Mm. We have this just experience where, you know, here in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, where I work, we were confronted with this quite early on. But where you are, you were confronted with it even two to four weeks earlier than I was. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, you've been, people there in the Bay Area have been living this pandemic now longer than anybody else in the United States. Absolutely. I mean, we, I think California was one of the first places to uh, um, initiate the shelter in place, uh, closed down the schools. And I think that was initially really produced also some results in, in kind of curtailing the cases. But in a way, we've been plateauing and then going from one wave to another with around, especially around holidays and family vacation, uh, vacation times. So, so it's a it's a strange story because in a way we're sheltering in place, but it's also California, so everybody is outside, even mm-hmm. so they're masked. It's a surreal experience in a way, not being able to do things that are uh, common common experiences for you normally, but there's still life seems to be going on in a in a very particular way. It's not as isolated as it was in the beginning. I think of your campus as so lively, and I I mean yeah. it. I'm assuming, I mean, you haven't been back in, in the classroom since, since March then. No, I haven't been back in the classroom since March. Uh, we moved all the teaching to online teaching in March or even a little bit earlier. You know, time seems very blurry. No, right? I know. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it is. It, it is. I mean, you're right. I mean, the one thing that is I really love, uh, one of the things I love about Berkeley is the lively campus and the engagement with the students. We have a very unique student body here and students from all uh, from very different experiences. It's a very diverse campus, and that's something that's really fallen off. We tried to create different tools in online teaching to kind of uh, imitate that experience and create community, but it's been really tough, and it's been tough for the students. Cindy, let me bring you in. Same question. Um, 
how are you doing? Where are you calling from? What's the pandemic look like? Thank you. So um, I'm doing well. I'm calling from San Antonio, Texas, uh, the Alamo city down here. And um, well, the cases are not great. Uh, it's kind of been an, a slight up and down um, with a general kind of incline, right? Kind of trajectory. Uh, the daily cases, I guess the average number of daily cases these days is about 1,700, about 1,700 cases a day. And over the last, I guess, uh, as of yesterday anyway, the last week, there had been about 10 to 16 deaths per day in Bear County here, um, with a total since March of something like, I guess, 2,000 now. I think we just got to 2,000, or we're just about to get to 2,000 uh, deaths in Bear County since the beginning of this thing with 170,000 or so cases um, by now. And uh, I mean, you know, all lies uh, for better or worse, I guess, uh, because people are kind of maybe over relying on, on the vaccines, I think. But um, for better or worse, we're the vaccines, uh, all lies on the vaccines, right? And this, the rollout has been very slow here. Uh, and I think that seems to be the case kind of all over in a lot of uh, places. Um, there's about 2 million, there are about 2 million people in, in, in my county. And I think 20,000 uh, as of this week have been vaccinated, which is, I mean, not enough, <laughs> right? It's, it's, yeah, worrisome. Uh, I have lots of family who live in Austin and in San Antonio and they report the same uh very hard and then also this and i was talking with this um with my guests uh yesterday jacob steer williams and debbie levine we had a great conversation but at one point we were talking about just this surreal aspect of people calling all around to try to find vaccine like you're calling around to try to um find a a dry cleaner that's open or something it's just like you know just like calling around making calls um Checking a, online every day. Vaccine entrepreneurship. You know, where can I where can I get my and then there's this strange impact that if it's been described by people, if you find it, of course you you're excited that you found it. But then there's this odd guilt, like, well, for me, do I should I go tell my neighbors? Do I call on my family? Sounds mm -hmm. like that's the situation there. It certainly is. And uh, you know, there there are other issues. I mean, you know, with with uh, what's going on in terms of the vaccine in Texas, there were some efforts, and you might have seen this actually recently in the news uh, over here in, in Dallas County, to try to prioritize the more vulnerable communities mm -hmm. to get the vaccines out to them first. Um, and these are priority, uh, primarily, excuse me, uh, communities of color, right? Um, Latino and, and Black communities that are just overly, uh, you know, affected uh, by the pandemic and um, the state said no. The state said that that's, uh, that's not acceptable, right, to the, the, the Department of State Health Services. And so uh, if they had gone on with the plan, if Dallas County had gone on with the plan to focus first on vulnerable communities, they would have pulled the vaccines entirely. And that's the kind of thing that, uh, that you don't want to see during a public health crisis, right? Anyway, so that's... Uh, that, to me, that sounds like cruelty. I don't, you know, but the... Texas public health approach at this time has been mystifying yeah. to me. Well, we'll come back to some of those themes in a minute. Let me bring Tiago in. Thank you, Cindy. Tiago, um, where are you calling from and how is it there? 
Uh, I'm calling from uh, Balakinwood, so very close to Philadelphia, uh, um, in the Philadelphia main line. And uh, so f things here, you know, uh, so it's not too bad right now how the numbers of, of infections and how, and how the rate is growing. Uh, uh, but of course, the big story is again vaccination and how slow this, uh, you know, the rollout has been also here in, in Pennsylvania generally and specifically uh, in this area. Uh, and so, how limited it is. Um, I've uh, I've returned recently from Europe, you know, and maybe that's that might be more interesting to share that experience as well. Uh, so I've been uh, I've just been here for the last uh, two weeks. I returned from Portugal. I had been fr uh, since August. I had been in Portugal since August, and uh, interestingly enough, there is a uh, a dynamics going on there uh, that we just saw this weekend uh, of something that I would like us to discuss a bit more in this in this um, uh, in this roundtable, which is this connection between the rise of authoritarianism and COVID. And so we had presidential elections in Portugal on Sunday. And the way the two the, the two play together, it's like it's just an ama uh, amazing and uh, awful story again, you know, and how uh, the two go uh, go together, and so the kind of re reaction, the anti uh, doubts about vaccination or uh, wearing of masks, you know, how did that play into the uh, into the rise of something that had really low expression in Portugal. Uh, uh, which is the extreme right, you know. So, since Portugal had a fascist regime until 1974, until um, the until uh, last year, basically, uh, we had no 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 movement of ext uh, of right wing uh, extreme uh, radical right wing uh, of any expression, uh, and now to get it's. It, it's not. It's of course not only COVID, but it's hard not to consider the effects of COVID in the rise of that, mm -hmm. in, the, in the the rise of uh, of uh, right wing radicalism in Portugal. So basically, the candidate. So just to give you a little bit of background, so the candidate of the right wing uh, um, of right wing radicals, uh, the, he founded a new party called Enough, and that part, and he got uh, so in, in two thirds of the country. So he, he came out sec uh, third. He came out third in the presidential election, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and he uh, and he was second in two thirds of the of the districts. You know? So basically, he didn't win in the two major cities. Uh, so he didn't make very well in the two major cities in Lisbon and Oporto, but in the rest of the country, uh, namely interior areas, he did quite well, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. Okay. So and in a, in a Dynamics that had all to do with uh, resistance to and criticism of uh, public health measure, measures as well. Well, I was going to ask everyone to, to talk about a little bit about how the pandemic relates to their research or, or how they see their research differently throughout this year. And, and Tiago, I'm just going to stay with you on this and then I'll, I'll come to everyone else because you are a historian of fascism and historian of science and you're an ingenious historian of, of fascism. It, and I wonder, maybe we, you could say a little bit more about how maybe you see your your work differently this year, as as you even what you're just describing. But then also, uh, I remember having an event with you early after Trump had been elected, and you you described Trumpism 
that early in 2016, and you talked about the rise of fascism in the United States. And I don't think I said this to you at the time, but it's, I remember thinking, I, I don't know. I mean, that's okay. That's just it's good to think with. Let's let's good to think with. I don't feel that way anymore. I, I see my own approach to fascism having changed and authoritarianism having changed a lot in this last year. What, what about you? Uh, so uh, that has been my experience as well, as well with uh, most of my colleagues that I sp uh, speak with uh, when we discuss fascism uh, is that change of uh, like, you know, most experts in fascism, they, they tended to say like at the beginning, you know, uh, the, the, this is, uh, let's not, Call it fascism. This is not helping. Uh, fascism is a quite uh, you know, specific phenomenon. It doesn't help uh, characterizing what's going on, not only in the United States but around the world, uh, with the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil, with Modi in India, uh, so with several with things in Hungary, with Poland, you know uh, that, uh, and now uh, as I've just told you, like in Portugal as well, that fascism is not that it was not seen as a helpful. As a helpful thing, uh, and that has changed. You know, that has changed radically. And I think with with the Trump, with the Trump administration, and of course after what happened to just the day that I arrived in the United States, <laughs> that's exactly. So I came back to the country uh, on January sixth, uh, and uh, so it's. Um, I think that it now makes more sense to describe this as fascism, and so in my in my like. Like the particular things that I do research on, which is like that relationship between science and fascism, and namely on the role the role of science as enabler of fascist visions of society. You know, I think it's something that really you know caught my attention very early on, on how uh, on, on on the in the specific case of the United States on the strange relationship between the Trump administration. And of course, people like Fauci, Fauci, or uh, uh, or Dr. Birks, you know, it's it's like, uh, and uh, so these recent interviews that we had this week, you know, like uh, of both of them. So I think that the Fauci interview is just like it's really, it's really um, suggestive of how this works, how this relationship works. You know, someone that so in, I think the usual way to approach this has been. Fascists don't like science, and fascists attack science. So we are in so fascism can't handle the truth and things like that. That scientific truth that scientists provide. But I think the relationship is quite more complicated than that. And again, that interview with Fauci was very illuminate, uh, illuminating in that respect. That he was not sent away, as he describes. He was never sent away. You know, uh, he would uh, just and he would have conversations with the president with. With Trump, and what happens all the time is that Trump is trying to see if scientists say something that he can rely on, that they, that he can use, whatever. Mm -hmm. So he's he's uh, so it's is trying. So he always needs the presence of scientists, mm -hmm. whatever kind of scientists, in order to imagine that the things he's doing, it's actually they are making they make sense. And so, well, if it's not saying whatever what he wants to hear, then it just doesn't pay attention to. Okay? But the issue is, this is not anti-science. It's another use of science. You know, in my my mm -hmm. historical work with uh, with uh, fascism in the 1930s, 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 uh, what I've tried to always call attention 
was to this role of scientists making visions of national communities uh, uh, seem plausible. You know, that it was possible to feed uh, with the products of uh, one's, uh, one's nation, you know, uh, so one, uh, one country, the entire community, you know, that this was possible. This hasn't been possible in the 19th century to think about Germany in these terms. In the 1920s, scientists are saying to Hitler, yes, you can do this, you know, there are many, yes, you can do this. And this is what, so it's promising, it's enabling these kinds of visions. And I see that actually playing, so uh, uh, playing in the current crisis, you know, the role of scientists, uh, and uh, namely of, and uh, everywhere, that uh, it's, not, it's not a question of um, uh, the, the fascists or the current fascist leaders being against scientists, but always trying to pick up what they can from scientists in order to, in order to sustain their crazy visions. Let me, Sandra, let me bring you in on this question. I know it's not your central research area, but maybe on this issue around authoritarianism, if there's anything you want to reflect on what Tiago just said, I just want to throw mm -hmm. in. I mean, there was a crucial moment in which apparently we're, we watched it, but sort of hearing behind the scenes that Trump had finally had enough of Fauci. I think mostly because Fauci was getting better press than he was. Mm -hmm. And so he turned to a different scientist, Scott Atlas. Yeah. He said, I, this guy will say some good things about me. And Atlas, and Atlas did, even though he really wasn't specifically the specialist in, in that area. I don't know, Sandra, anything on these themes resonate for you? That's a great question. I, I have to say, since I, I, uh, I'm originally Austrian, I think fascism is never too far from my mind as a, as a kind of endemic possibility. But I think I, I was really intrigued at that kind of um, different usage of trust and mistrust of science and how that played out in actually very complicated ways. And I think I agree that it was more a search for the right kind of science. And I mean, that's something we see in history all over, you know, all the time to find the right kind of sciences, uh, the right kind of scientific results and scientific recommendation that, uh, or scientific expert that under, underscores and supports a particular political agenda or, or, or economic um, uh, ambitions. And so I think in a way, I thought it was really interesting to see that play out again, because I also agree, it's very easy to say, oh, they just don't believe in science, they just make everything up, it's all, you know, they're all flat earthers. But I don't think that's the case. I think they're just, you know, they're just putting their finger on something uh, on this uh, persistent myth that everybody wants to believe that medicine and science is this kind of uh, always has just one answer and one particular truth. And I think they're playing out, playing really well with that idea, uh, with the reality of that there are many conflicting hypotheses and ways to think about things and that it's ever evolving. And so, uh, I thought that was really interesting to see. I mean, especially in the kind of what are public health public health recommendations as something that evolves and changes over time and adapts both to a uh, um, both to the the the, the ever changing uh, assessment of the virus and the disease condition, but also to uh, 
uh, political and economic circumstances. And so in a way, there, there was this weird pull and push to say, oh, but other public health scientists recommend something else, but or, or they didn't say that to, to recognize that that's an evolving practice as well. And I think that, I actually think that they played that in a particular interesting way, something that we've seen over and over again in history. I mean, just, Just to stay with the, with that, I mean, the, one of the features of that that I found quite distressing, but also fascinating, if I can detach a little bit, was, were these moments when President Trump would actually be championing new treatments. <laughs> so he became the sort of great spokesperson for hydroxychloroquine, for example, mm -hmm. or remdesivir, and even... I don't know if he took hydro. I think he did. And he took remdesivir. He had COVID. What a strange position for an authoritarian. I think it'd be no doubt we should call him an authoritarian leader to also be championing science, but particular companies. And here comes the mm -hmm. fascist element, particular companies that he thinks are in particular sector, the pharmaceutical sector, which he was very enthusiastic about, remains enthusiastic. I'm also invested in, in some form or another, but I so, think... Yeah, no, I agree. But I think, again, I mean, he's championing those kind of the kind of scientific fixes that are short term, quick technological fixes that are that that solve a particular problem that he's more concerned about uh, rather than the, the public health of the country. It's it's, um, you know, fixing, opening up again, opening, uh, getting the economy back up and running. And so those are fixes that work very well. But public health practices such as mask wearing and social distancing to slow down the epidemic, those are much, you know, those are easier uh, in a way, but also harder because they take longer and they, they're less controllable. And I think in America, there is a tendency also in that it's not just Trump to believe in, in, in technological, technological medicine and technology fixes to uh, complex medical and social problems. Cindy, let me bring you in on, on this as a historian who works on a time period before modern democracy. Some, I wonder how you feel about some of these usages of terms like authoritarianism, but anything you want to react to, there's a lot on the table here. I'd like to get your take. Absolutely. And this is fascinating. Particularly fascinating, I think, to me has been uh, one of the things Tiago said in the beginning, which was he's seeing this sort of, uh, this sort of marriage between NPIs, right, between um, just uh, public health practices, right? Social distancing and mask wearing, you know, as simple as it is to, to do this, there are protests against this. And there is, seems to be a relationship between the rejection of these public health measures and the rise of authoritarianism and this kind of pendulum swing to the right, as it were. And that's just fascinating to me because that's one of the things that as a historian of 18th century disasters and, and public health crises, I didn't, it's not immediately apparent in the records. Before COVID, I didn't, uh, I wouldn't have guessed necessarily that that's what we were going to be 
experiencing today in our own, uh, uh, you know, disaster, public health disaster. And yet here it is, you know, this massive wave of a rejection of the simplest, in some cases, at least mask wearing, right? The simplest measures to protect our own communities, you know, and, and yet it's just been remarkable to me. And so, you know, one of the ways that this, this whole thing has informed my work is it's kind of led me to go back to my sources and search for that kind of rejection of, of measures uh, or reaction to measures in the archives, really, and in, in the documents that I've been working with for years. Um, like I said, these, these kind of mo movements weren't necessarily immediately apparent, so I've had to like dig for them, you know, and, uh, and even then they're not, you know, there's not a whole lot that I see in my period in the 18th century by way of mass protests or anything like that to public health measures, with some exceptions. I'm thinking, for instance, in London, there were, there were significant, uh, there was a significant movement against public health measures in 1720, but not, uh, in France, right? Where the plague that I look at in 1720 took place or, uh, or across, uh, the Pyrenees in Spain or, you know, so, so yeah, this, this is all, this has been uh, an informative year for my own work. And in some ways, I'm thankful that, uh, that I, I'm writing the book when I am because it, it's, you know, it's, it's laden now with my own experiences, right? It's really interesting that you, that you went back and interrogated it, the record. Yeah. And that you find that, that silence there but I'm also interested that you you took that comparative look because that's an important feature of our discussion today about about COVID-19. There's some countries in which the kind of protests that we've seen in the United States would just be nonsensical. Just wouldn't, you know, people might disapprove of certain measures or they might be uncomfortable or unhappy about them, but they uh, they won't go to a public building and ostentatiously take off a mask and cough on a a law enforcement, you know, um, a police officer or something like that. And we've seen that in the United States. I always wonder when I, when I think about that, if it's just, I'm, I just don't know what I'm looking at, that it's there. The dissent is there. I just don't know how to see it. I, I don't know, Cindy, does that, like, how do you, if you went looking for that in your time period that you're expert in, where, what would you find as a form of dissent? What would you mean? What kinds of things were taking place at that time that yeah. indicate dissent? Gosh, well, I mentioned London uh, during the 1720 plague of Provence. Uh, and what we see there is we see a, a sort of very centralized response, very statist response to the to the disaster um, where, you know, the 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 crown steps in and puts the kind of measures that you see in France itself where the plague actually was and never spread from there. But there's there are protective measures taking place all over Europe at this time uh, and across the Mediterranean, really, to protect themselves against the plague that was in, in southern France. Uh, and for the most part, European states, I mentioned Spain and, and Portugal, it goes uh, relatively, I suppose, smoothly. There wasn't there weren't mass reactions against it. But in London, there were uh, mo many people took to their pens. We see a really kind of Fascinating newspaper culture at this time in response to the plague. Everybody from Daniel Defoe uh, using pen names and whatnot to, uh, of course, lesser known contemporaries 
using names like the admonisher in the local papers and stuff mm -hmm. like that, writing against the, the evils of these French-like despotic practices that we learn from France, right? Like, uh, like for instance, uh, you know, uh, slowing uh, or, or rather, uh, what do you call them? The fondeos, the, the ship visits, I should say, right? Like mm. searches of homes, searches, searches of ships, um, the closing of markets and of brothels and of celebrations and all of these kinds of uh, of, of measures that were put in place were were uh, rejected enough that they actually got mm. thrown out after a few months, right? And they didn't get thrown out until the end of the plague elsewhere in Europe. So um, a lot of the, a lot of it was uh, was in writing these kind of this kind of protest movement and explicitly um, called French. Associated referring with, to absolutely, yeah, referring yeah, to sure. French, you know, to despotic French practices. You know, who does this king think he is? You know, putting these kind of practices I, in place, sanitary lines, and all these kind of things when there's no plague here, you know, and, yeah. and then questions well, about contagion come up as well. You know, there's a lot of political advantage to be taken in 18th century Britain by I, to, referring to despotic French practices, right? <laughs> exactly, so, so it fits into a certain frame. Absolutely. There. Sandra, let me bring you back in and hear a little bit about your own um, research that you've been working on this year. Kind of the same way, you know, Cindy was sort of talking about how she's re-examined the archive a bit. Um, what's been on your mind? I think you just have to unmute. I found myself in a peculiar moment because I was just finished a, a book project that I've been working on a long time about kind of the, the emergence of sex gender binary in the clinical encounters with patients with intersex traits at the Hopkins Clinic. So it was really focused on clinical encounters and patients and uh, a historization of gender and then looking at how these concepts travel into other disciplines such as psychology, other practices as the uh, establishment of trans identity and then into the 1960s gender identity clinics and the 1970s feminist activism. So kind of all over the place, but when the pandemic struck, I was just getting ready for a new project on the science of happiness that I've been thinking about for mm -hmm. a long time. And that was cut short because all the archives closed and I, I, and I kind of lost, um, I don't know. I I just felt less inclined. I didn't. I wasn't in the mood for happiness at that moment. So I've been looking at at examining, going back to things that have that are that are current themes in my research that I'm and kind of working out new projects. And one of that is kind of structural racism in healthcare facilities and kind of gendering of disease and gender gendering of health uh, practices. Uh, others are really patient experiences is something I'm really interested in. I work a lot with patient records and that's something I'm really interested in this, the difference in patient experiences in this pandemic. And I'm currently looking at actually Johns Hopkins again at um, uh, kind of uh, uh, exploring the role that race plays in the first kind of 40 years of the establishment of the hospital in terms of really patient treatment and demographic who comes to the hospital, where they're treated and why. And so that's just, but at the moment, that's also like, I'm, I got my old sources. I'm kind of struggling to find access new sources because of the archives that has been closed for a year. So I'm re -exam I also re-examined the work I did on gender at Hopkins to really think more closely about race. And that's what's something that really came from this year. 
uh, and to re-examine my my sources more for the absences also in the light of what kind of an archive I would like to establish for you know our current experiences and then thinking back or kind of you know I kind of thinking back and forth what's missing from my archive what hasn't been collected and what should be collect now so I've been more thinking in the future because I'm caught in this awkward place where uh my uh I was caught in you know uh I was locked out of the archive so to speak yeah I everything you're saying is just like it's just my head is tingling because it's absolutely where I'm been talking to so many historians and many people finding themselves in the same position. And I really like the fact that you're being honest about the point that there's a lot of things we can pull from home that have been digitized, uh, but there's an awful lot of things we can't, mm -hmm. even if we do, you know, I mean, Cindy's doing 18th century work, so very hard, but even people who do contemporary work, post-World mm -hmm. War II work, um, a lot of it's still in journals that are in libraries that haven't been digitized or their papers that, you know, maybe if they're the papers of a president, sure, you can work on that from home. If they're lesser known figures or social movements, it's much harder to do. I, I wanna come back to this thing you also put on the table and Tiago, I'm gonna come to you next, but this uncanny experience of being locked out of the archive to a certain extent, and then also thinking, how do I wanna build the archive of this moment? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, it's like you're outside and dreaming of getting in. And one of the things you do while you dream is like, well, how would I make an archive of my time? I've heard many people refer to that. I don't even know what we should call that. Tiago, what, what do we call that? Uh, can I, okay, well, let me be a little bit uh, provocative here and say uh, how this actually, this experience of being shut down from the archive. Uh, as informed my and uh, uh, my research or my writing, you know, uh, and in order to make a case for the comeback of the armchair uh, historian, you know? and so and uh, how yeah, of course there are so there are obvious problems with that, you know, and I don't want uh, as now uh, to just to not thinking that uh, the archive is not an important thing in history, but I do think that this call for a moment of reflexivity in history you know? and for how, you know, uh, so, and that being separated from the archive has namely led, so it started like pushing me into a direction of, um, of asking more questions about historiography. And so, and uh, yes, the archive is from the, and, uh, the archive is fundamental, and of course, for me, and I do uh, my current research, what more, most people would call global history, transnational history, there's transnational approaches to it. Most of that research traditionally, and more and more we see that, you know, it leads to immense lists of archives, uh, sources everywhere around the world. Very, it's hard to, um, uh, hard to uh, reproduce the kind of, that kind of history uh, in institutions that are not wealthy or well endowed, uh, it has tended to reproduce all the problems of uh, hierarchy in our in the historical profession. And by forcing myself to engage more with historiography, instead of just thinking, "Oh, I have to go to all these archives," and have so as you mentioned, you know, in my Orange project, I have I deal with uh, uh, with um, uh, locals with, with areas that go from 
South America, uh, North Africa, South Africa, the United States, you know. Yes, I've engaged in some of these places. I went to the archives. I didn't go to archives everywhere. And I was like, now I can't go with, with COVID, right? And now we can't go. I said, well, this is, this is terrible. But on the other hand, it really forces me into a discussion with historiography and not just taking into the, this thing of, that global historians have normally of going everywhere and grabbing all we can and, you know, like, and thinking that you are finding new sources and new arc every, everywhere you go. And it has like led me to a kind of uh, being a little bit more humble and engaging in discussions with local historians, namely, and with local traditions, local historiographic traditions that I had not been sufficiently uh, aware before uh, before being stuck at home, I must say. So being forced of, well, now you are stuck with what is what you have available online mostly, or what you can get, or or what or the books you can buy through Amazon. So it has that, uh, like there is a. I, I think it's actually a good moment to reflect on the on the on a, on new possibilities of thinking about how we have a more uh, a more um, you know a less hierarchical historical field. You know, like in particular fields that I write, which tend to be like uh, I, I really resent that uh, uh, global history, histories of capitalism, uh, they tend to reproduce the worst things in academia uh, and uh, very male, very white, very uh, wealthy institutions, actually. Okay. So this is my provocation that, uh, that this is, there are good things, uh, good things to, to, or these forces think in terms that we were not that we were not used to. I, I like the provocation. I'm going to hand it to Cindy and see what she thinks. But I, I, one part of that I want to underline, having talked to um, archivists, and we'll do a session coming up pretty soon on COVID calls with librarians and archivists. I have seen historians championing libraries and archives at this time more vocally in ways that I haven't in the past. And I wondered if that wasn't sort of the answer to my own question being locked out to a certain extent is we actually realize how hard that work is um, and how easy it is to cut. When you close something uh, in institutions that may be looking for a route to austerity like universities are in the United States right now, um, cutting the hours, cutting the staffs and archives and libraries is, is always sort of underway. We really have a responsibility to speak up about that. I've been happy to see more of that. Um, in this in this period of time, Cindy, what do you, what do you think about this? Um, it's funny because I just recently saw, I mean, maybe two three weeks ago, um, a short piece in the journal Nature about the the frenzy of COVID collection and what is being preserved, and you know, uh, they, they called it a, a data deluge or a data I think a data deluge or something. You know, just the, are we going to be overwhelmed? You know, when we look back to, to the overwhelming number of, of materials that we have at our disposal that are being preserved. Um, and, you know, and that also brings up the question of what is, whose voices are being represented, right? Kind of like, like Tiago was just saying, the archives are already laden with inequality, right? Um, as it is, uh, you know, and, and we worry that uh, or we should worry, we should certainly be cognizant of the fact that this growing global COVID archive um, is very global north heavy, 
I guess, so to speak, right? And um, more so than, than global south heavy, uh, therefore preserving, you know, the, the, the experiences during the, the pandemic of, of those in the wealthier, you know, and, and wider north. And that's something that we should be uh, cognizant of, right? Especially, um, like, like all of you, you know, I'm relying to um, on more digitized sources and, and kind of re-examining the kind of materials that I can work with during this thing that I have access to. And, um, and, and I have to remind myself, you know, that as collections are being digitized, the collections that I'm using, you know, that point, that crux, that important moment in which the collection that's going to be digitized is chosen to be digitized, leaving others in the dark, you know, whose voices are being even more silenced, right, than they are than, than before um, by our increasing reliance on the digitization, unless everything gets digitized, but that's not where we are right now, right? So, so yeah, I, I just, I think about a, a, a lot about the, um, or at least I have been, right, uh, in terms of uh, working with the materials that I work with and moving forward as far as what is being preserved and what I want to be preserved from this moment, right? How do we remain cognizant and more than remain cognizant, how do we actually act on uh, and make sure that there is more equity in the voices being echoed or preserved, right? Cindy, I wanna stay with, with this for a second because I think there's a tension here, which we don't talk about enough in the disaster research world, which is that when significant disaster history archives are made um, that of the global south, they are often have historically often been done at the behest of deep-pocketed institutions in the global north. Right. Which is uncomfortable, and and we try to move away from that. But that's the reality of the academic system and the institution, the higher education institutional system that we work in. Right. And so I wonder what the impact at this time has been, back to Tiago's point about, you know, rethinking to a certain extent how we approach global history. It doesn't necessarily need to be a well-funded American professor who gets on a plane and goes to eight research sites around the world. But in the absence of that, I do worry how smaller institutions will manage to archive at this time in the absence of those funds and in the absence of those in the absence of those scholars i'm not sure there's a way out of that bind but it's been on my mind right. i'm not sure that there's a way out of it either i mean we have to work with what is our are at disposal right uh we we can't work with materials that simply aren't there and haven't been preserved and so uh moving forward is where we have opportunities to correct some of these these problems but Looking back, for instance, in my work in the 18th century, I wish so much all the time that there were a lot more personal memoirs and diaries from people other than, uh, you know, I work with a lot of, you know, consuls and, and representatives and, and, and leaders of state and, and all that kind of stuff. And not uh, as much as I, uh, I would like with just the average person who was on the ground and who happened to know how to write, which is nice because we are in the 18th century after all. Not everybody was able to write, but um, and there's that, you know, that kind of stuff is, is a lot harder to get your, your hands on. Sandra, let me bring you in on this question of the archive. And there's a, maybe something slightly ironic here at this time as well. Um, I haven't worked in medi medicine history archives, but only a little bit in the past, but I know that the voices of physicians are often highly privileged there. Mm -hmm. But at this time, um, 
only in the last couple of months have the voices of physicians come into the mainstream of news reporting in the United States because doctors and clinicians have been so busy. I've had only a couple of doctors on COVID calls, in part because I just don't feel comfortable asking for their time um, or they won't write back <laughs> because they're so, you know, they're saving saving people right now. I, I wonder that sort of, maybe that will be an interesting absence from mm -hmm. the COVID archive at I, this time. I, yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because I, I mean, a lot of what uh, Cindy and Tiago said resonates a lot with me thinking about the archive of this pandemic. And I, I think the interesting thing is that we have a lot of accounts or we're collecting accounts, pandemic, um, pandemic chronicles or journals uh, from kind of everyday experiences, both in terms of journaling, both in kind of uh, terms of cultural expression with the technology, technological tools we have at hand uh, and the possibilities, a lot of kind of an overabundance of photography and mass documentation and cultural artifacts, exactly the things that we usually want to have in from, from past epidemics sure. don't. But I, I, I agree that there might be uh, a lack of uh, health practitioner voices and kind of a lack of diversity in health practitioner voices because those people who are going through these experiences now, if they're not a uh, few people writing an open ad or, or kind of write, asking for help in the press, their, their, their experiences are not documented and they don't have time to document it. And here again, I wonder if these experiences get documented and make it into the archive, whose experiences it will be. Because I think the frontline workers, the, the nurses, the ambulance drivers, the people who work in the nursing homes, those are all, you know, voices that I would like to enter the COVID archive on top of the physician's documentation of the physician's perspective. But it's an interesting point that, you know, with, Coming to think of it, of course, you know, the, the, those, the physicians who end up in the archive are not the everyday frontline physicians in all the hospitals. I mean, mm -hmm. mostly if you work in medical archives, they're prominent physicians who have the time to create, you know, to collect the materials, to give them to an archive, to really uh, invest in kind of being, being, being invested and implemented in an archive and not all, and most physicians don't have that kind of work and don't have that actually on their agenda that that's something they want to do. So it's like that, again, the everyday experiences that we anyway in history have to find through case books or patient records or, or, or kind of random collections. I just want to say something to what Cindy said about finding those, you know, finding more, uh, resources of every day, like, like how do you create an archive that goes beyond those prominent voices? And I think one of the things, I think it's really a part of an initiative, not just funding and being a developer at uh, universities, but there are really low-key initiatives in different countries that I know that are really documenting these uh, and kind of collecting these sources. I know in Austria, there's a, at the University of Vienna, there's a Frauennachlässe, uh, archive, which is just like two people collecting the, the, the estates, the kind of the written documents of women, like everyday women, and just putting document, digitizing, putting them together for people to use. So I think that's something we need to pro be proactive to create these archives and to create these like everyday archives and really think about past epidemics, think about the AIDS epidemic, what's missing 
you know, what hasn't been documented and then kind of make this visualist for future historians to not overlook in a way uh, particular group, particular experiences, particular spaces, right? Rural, I'm thinking urban, but I mean, you know, I'm always in urban spaces, but what about the rural experience of COVID in isolated areas where there is no hospital, where there are no doctors? That's um, a lot of what you said there is just uh, to me really interesting to follow up. And I, I just the first part of what you're saying, you know, I'm thinking of John Barry's book about the great influenza, which is a, a great book. And I've talked with John Barry on COVID calls, but his strategy, his narrative strategy in the book is to follow the physicians, you know, the Johns Hopkins physicians, to follow the physicians who not only left a deep record, but who also had the command of resources and the ear of public health officials in big cities at the time. And I think that's an important, I, I love that book. And I, I think it's an important set of stories to be told, but maybe there aren't correlate books for the physicians in Kansas City or Minneapolis or Sioux Falls or San Antonio or wherever they were who were on the front lines of that pandemic. So maybe the category of physicians isn't the right thing. It's mm -hmm. about the physicians who have access to, to politics at, and, the, and media. And with that in mind, I don't think Tony Fauci or Dr. Burks, they're not going to, they're going to be a lot of books written about them. I don't know if we need those books as much as we're gonna need the books of the physicians who've been in the ERs, maybe even as you say, Sandra, in urban places and not in the United States. Tiago, we've made a lot of, of use of your provocation and taken it in a different direction, but I wanna bring it back to you in this question about building the archive. What more are we gonna need in it? We, uh, uh, sorry to like uh, put it a little bit aside, not asking, not answering directly to what you're asking me, but it's, I would like to put the emphasis on working with other uh, with uh, historians of several traditions and building like a new way of writing history. So I, I really like to insist on the how I think also this is a moment that we can think in a in terms of kind of collective projects, you know, with historians that have access and that think and ask different questions about the archive. So that's the thing. Also, it's not that's one of the problems of. Uh, American money or whatever, you know, supporting these, uh, supporting archives everywhere, is that if that archive is built with the questions of only an historiographic tradition, you know, and that's the importance of actually building a proper historical profession that is more inclusive on a global level, you know, requires this kind of collective, uh, uh, you know, collective projects where we go to Chile or we go to Brazil, we go to uh, Portugal, we go to uh, Mexico, we go not just there to collect data, you know, or uh, and to, but also to ask questions with local historians, with historians working there. And when I say local, it's not because they only deal with local problems, that they are, they, with, with historians that work there, that know, that have questions to ask about the archive, you know, and so that they help us build that archive. And so, my emphasis will, will be, and it's like my message here, like what I will uh, strive for, is like it's for uh, uh, an engagement with uh, historical traditions, with historical lineages, taking them seriously, taking other you know places around the world where recognizing uh, a dialogue with other historians that, and not looking at uh, places around the world as just uh, where we, sites where we're going to tap into. To, to get our to get our data, uh, in the, that's that's a thing. So 
a, a more a, a deeper engagement with historians around with di with different with different historical traditions. I got so excited about this conversation, I totally forgot to even do what I'm supposed to do, which is to remind people that we've been listening to, you've been listening to COVID calls and I'm talking with Sandra Adair, Cindy Ermas, and Tiago Sariva about history in this pandemic. I used to say pandemic year, but it's gone beyond that now, pandemic second year. Um, but Tiago, I want to follow up on something you, you said there, and I think my guests are okay if we go a little longer. I want to, I want to okay, um, thank you for that. Um, I came up in a historical training in which the, I don't want to be too hyperbolic, but the general idea was that there would, you would master the historiography, you find a gap in the historiography, you retreat into the archive, you return from the archive well-weathered, uh, alone with your materials, and you write that up and that's your book, it's a solitary act. What you're describing is more resonant with what I've seen in, in disaster research, disaster history, history of medicine and public health in the last, even before the pandemic, that seemed to be a move towards more collaboration, mm. even across historical subdisciplines, but across, let's say, history and anthropology or history and, and museum work or archival work, fine. Um, that's important, but it's not the way that our graduate programs are set up. Can that change? Oh yeah, <laughs> I think it has to. I think it can change, uh, uh, but yes. Yeah, so it's it's thinking about the historical profession. I think in a very different way. You know, I, I agree with you uh, that it needs uh, it needs really rethinking uh, of consideration of multiple. So this thing about multiple geographies, I will insist upon, and then the other one is this constant reflexivity on how we choose how we delineate our objects. You know, the concept of the political dimensions of this, the, the political dimensions of our work when we delineate one object you know this is the scales that we choose to tell our history here we were you know discussing is it dr fauci or is it other kinds of uh, other kinds of uh, of uh, public health people is it that uh, we should look at individuals or should we look at communities you know that that i think that one of the crucial things missing in our uh, normal reports of uh, uh, in namely in the west news uh, it's uh, it's being able to identify, you know, in a very concrete way, the communities that are actually uh, hurting more and that are uh, uh, hurting more in the, uh, during this COVID pandemic. And so that's like the selection of scale that you do this is fundamental, spatial scale, uh, uh, social scale, but also, of course, as we are historians, temporal scale. How do you do these stories? And then asking, so make not taking those answers for granted that you know that you have delineated your historiography you know and then you have th that has fed very well an industry of producing history graduates but i think that yes in order to uh to uh to rethink you know to to rethink the the, the historical profession at the moment we are in right now 
know, it demands these these kinds of hard questions and demands graduate programs that are much more aware and much more in connection with uh, with uh, what's going on in in different parts of the world. In a way, again, where we take other parts of the world as also producers of historical knowledge, not not just as the objects of our historical knowledge, but producers of historical knowledge. And so all kinds of, I'm all for, and, and I, I do that, and I, 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 I uh, privilege that kind of, that kind of work of uh, working collectively with, with teams from uh, all over the world. But Cindy, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this, but I want to add a layer as well, which is that um, the other thing that's, been needed and seem to have been an, an opportunity. I'm not sure how many humanists have taken this opportunity, but is to advocate for graduate students at this time, but to also just advocate on their campuses for the an awareness of inequality in public health history. Mm -hmm. Again, talking with Jacob Steer Williams yesterday, and he he uh, volunteered that on his campus he was he was pretty active in speaking up to the administration, and so they put him on a planning committee. And if they thought that putting him on the planning committee was going to make him go away and be quiet, it didn't work out that way. <laughs> Good. That's part of the training, too, I I guess. And maybe, you know, I, I guess I have a dim memory of faculty who I knew who had been active in the 60s in really being radical on campus and changing the curriculum. But that seems to have faded <laughs> over time. Cindy, I don't know any thoughts on this at all. Yeah, I really think we need a, a complete uh, re-envisioning, uh, as, as Tiago was saying, of the profession, of what our place uh, is in uh, on our campuses, right, and and our and in our societies. I think that this was already much needed before COVID because of the state of the job market that still has not recovered from, of course, right, from the recession and uh, and. So we already needed a sort of revisiting or re-envisioning of, uh, of the profession, certainly at the very least, the way we train our grad students uh, before COVID. I just think COVID has made it more acute. I mean, that's an understatement. It's made it absolutely integral uh, in my view um, to where, you know, just to, to, to train our graduate students in such a way, obviously that is reflective of you know, they're not going to, they don't need to necessarily end up in academia. I think we need to, to obviously uh, to get away from that if we want to even save our profession, frankly, uh, in the longer term. And I think it's also the most ethical thing to do. I think there are questions of, of, of what's ethical here as well, to continue training grad students and taking in grad students who are in many cases accumulating debt, you know, just to uh, without changing anything, I think that's 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 criminal, <laughs> frankly. Um, and so, um, so I, I'm all for it as well. Uh, I'm with the Iowa. I'm for a full re-envisioning of uh, of it. I, I'm into more activist uh, history, a more activist kind of maybe training. You know, to where we're more active, uh, literally more active, as I said, on our campuses uh, and in other ways, uh, and in policy making. I want to see more scholars in policy making as well, rather than um, as you described it, Scott, we go to our archives and we come out alone and you know with our documents and, and we go and we sit and we write our, our, our books and everything. Um, and, and we can absolutely continue to write those books, but I think collaboration is key. I think a re-envisioning and a re-envisioning is key. Uh, I think that more, uh, more 
being more proactive in, in a lot of ways is, is key as well. Sandra, I want to give you a chance to weigh in on this, and particularly because your work is so relevant in the realm of health policymaking. But, and maybe there's a tension in the history of medicine around this that I don't know as, as much about whether or not there's space there, particularly in this time, to train students who are not necessarily going to go in, into the faculty. Uh, yes, I think the answer is absolutely yes. I, we actually, uh, at the history department in Berkeley, we've been really engaging with the idea that we are training not, that we are training students in multiple ways and then we're preparing them for multiple positions afterwards. So it's not necessarily only the one way kind of academic, academic job in, uh, in teaching and researching, but for many different, so we've had, um, sponsored year-long pro programs to actually prepare our students for many career trajectories. Uh, some of them have also been supported and inspired by the AHA initiatives. So that's one of the things that we are, um, we've been trying to do. I have to say about working collectively, that is something I, I've always, I always enjoyed and I like doing. And I think to think collectively about historical problems is something that we should aspire to and inspire our students to do. However, it is, there, there's a little bit of conflict between our ambitions and then kind of outsourcing it to those who are momentarily the weakest in the in kind of the academic hierarchy are graduate students who still, if they decide to go into ac academia and if they want to make often are valued on, on exactly these things that we're trying to break up and, and criticize the kind of the, 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 the lone exceptional excellent academic work rather than the collectively thinking through the, through programs, but I think in teaching we can model collective thinking and can, we can model collective learning in a way that I try to model with my graduate students that we think about, uh, that we're not competing in thinking about problems, but we all productively engaging and contributing mm -hmm. to solving and historical and current problems. And so I think for me that is something that not only in my own research, but in teaching I'm trying to achieve and then also in outreach work to the communities I'm hoping to represent in my work that I'm giving a voice in my in my work. We're we're wrapping up now. We have a couple of minutes left, but I, I've got one last little question when I get in. Historians um, think a lot about beginnings and endings. We like to periodize things, as I said yesterday. We like to periodize things and then argue with ourselves about our periodization, and that's healthy. Uh, we talk about temporality a lot. Cindy, how is this pandemic going to end? How indeed, Scott? How indeed? <laughs> I can't wait to find out. I mean, I, I thought, thought you had the answer. <laughs> I wish I did. Yeah. I look at the historical, you know, materials that I work with and, and the epidemics that I look at and, and you know, everything, uh, these things, and almost abruptly, you know, it just becomes a subject for historians uh, all too quickly. People forget life goes back to normal. Uh, were any lessons learned? Uh, sometimes, mostly not. You know that. You know this is what I see a lot of in the uh, in the past, right? And and with the materials that I work with uh, since the 1800s through through today, really. But um, but how, you know how is this in particular going to end? Uh, I, I, like I said, uh, I think maybe in passing earlier, I, I don't want to put too much reliance on just the vaccines. We're going to be dealing with. Uh, with um, hunkering down, mask wearing, and social distancing and everything, at least through the summer, um, which is what you know a lot of scholars and, and experts and 
epidemiologists have been predicting since the very beginning of this thing. They said uh, about 18 months, right, uh, from the beginning. And it may turn out to be uh, about that much. And even then, it'll be slow as we come out of it. It won't be as abrupt as it appears in the in the, uh, in the the archives, so to speak, right? So I'm curious to know myself. <laughs> Sandra, your final thoughts on that? I don't know. I think it's really, I think the ending is, the ending of this pandemic is going to be uneven and messy. And it's going to, I think some people have already decided that it has socially ended before it has medically ended. And I think that we're going to look at different spaces, at different uh, sites, at different groups of people for whom the pandemic ends. I think there's, I agree, there's a moment where kind of the, it feels over for everyone, but I think that definitely, if you look, anything the history of epidemics teaches us is that these endings are very messy. They have to do with a, like, a, you know, a less of an urgency, but it might continue for some communities. It doesn't end in a long time. So my, my prognosis is messy and uneven. That's an important point too, I have to agree with you. That's a, I just have to sit with that for a That's a really mind expanding and very useful way to think about this. And I guess we, it's fair to say um, for many communities, it's not important when this pandemic begins and ends because the condition of, of precarity or racial injustice will be constant throughout. And if that's the way you look at it, um, then some ending point, I hadn't thought about medical endings and social endings being, that'd be interesting to chase down institutionally too. Even in the government, there will be some agencies which will sort of say the pandemic is over as far as they're concerned, while for others there will be. Thank you for that. Tiago, uh, I guess you have the last word here. We're, we're up on time, but uh, go yeah. for it. Okay, so I, I actually want to build on that. You know, So I started with calling attention to the, the, the connection between fascism and COVID uh, and how do you have connected actually to my historical uh, understanding of the 1930s as well. Uh, well, uh, and the way we got out of fascism, actually, uh, was uh, actually building a new world order, you know, uh, with all the problems that it had. But at least it was a reimagining of, uh, of government, and it was a reimagining of, uh, uh, you know, of the relationship of the United States with the rest of the Americas, the United States with the rest of the world. It produced terrible things after, but it produced very good things and produced a way of imagining about global governance uh, that uh, we had, that, that was actually, uh, that it produced um, uh, in, you know, important outcomes uh, in the forms of things like the FAO or, of course, uh, 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 the WHO, the World Health Organization. I think we are at that moment. And so, actually, I think that we are, or there is the possibility for that here. So I am in that very positive about what happened in the U.S. elections. And I think that things like, you know, that the U.S. is rejoining, uh, uh, the, it has never left properly, but it was it is rejoining in a proper way, who and the effort for uh, the COVAX, so the, the global vaccination effort. Uh, and that this is a moment that will require how we do that, you know, uh, you know to rethink that. And so that the actually that we decide on, and we ask it, you know, to learn how to ask, how does this end, you know, and how, when do we decide that this has ended, you know, and who, who, who decides this, who has the, who has the, the power to say that, and so I think that we were, we were in a very dangerous trajectory where there would be only vaccine on a mass scale for northern countries, and we are not there anymore, I think, we are in a very different situation, actually. I hope, and so uh, that this is a moment actually to 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 ask for that re renewal of imagining what is possible as global governance. I've reached a very 
strange moment. I asked historians uh, a question about the end of an event, and I, somehow I'm coming away from this feeling empowered and almost slightly optimistic. I'll have to go back and read the transcript, but clearly I haven't fully understood. No, but I, I, I'm just having a slight moment of lightness there. But Tiago, I think it's that framing is really important one to think about, also about the possibility for institution building at this time. I also think it circles back to something all three of you were talking about, about this moment as possibility, set of possibilities for reframing our profession and its utility and how we train students. Because I think a lot of students who are trained in history and the humanities in the 1920s and 30s and in the war years were part of that global institution building in the 50s and 60s. They didn't become academic historians. They applied those skills in other places. Um, I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls. Wonderful conversation today with Tiago Sariva, Cindy Armas, and Sandra Adair, and really learned a lot. And you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Tomorrow I'll be continuing the COVID calls, congressional discussions. I'll be talking with United States Representative Nakima Williams, representative of the Georgia 5th District. Really looking forward to that conversation. I want to thank each of you as well, Sandra and Cindy and Tiago. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. This is wonderful. Great. Thank you, Scott. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.